Hello, this is Mike Lanier from the Let's Roll Podcast, and we're joined with Jeff Thisted. I would say that, you know, he's the Motor Trend guy, uh, good guys, covers a lot of that stuff for uh, all the and the History Channel. I remember you being on the History Channel, too. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, I'm, a, yeah, I'm yeah. an expert, according to the History Channel. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we're here with Ryan Sage today. He's the president and co-founder of Formula Drift. So thanks for joining us, Ryan, and thanks for changing your schedule for my crazy schedule. So thank you for no, being here to today. Great to be here, and I appreciate the invitation to chat with you guys, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So, Jeff, have you been to Formula Drift event? I don't even know. I didn't, Royal Purple. Are you guys down in um, – uh, do you guys do an event in Long Beach, Ryan? We do, yeah. We have our kickoff event of the year is always historically in Long Beach. Last year, because of COVID constraints, it was actually in September, which is the first time we've done that in about 10 years or 12 years of its um, history. But yeah, Long Beach is kind of our kickoff round uh, for the championship. So to answer your question, Mike, yes, I have uh, friends of mine. Uh, you met Kyle and Bam from Royal Purple. And Marlena invited me down there years ago, right on the on the water, uh, not necessarily the mm -hmm. port of Long Beach, but in San Pedro, Long Beach. Um, it's, yeah, they get these things this close to the wall. Uh, Tanner Faust, yeah. I, I'm a fan of Travis Pastrana, what can I say? TP. Um, he was out yeah. there, I got to meet him. It's a, it's a hell of an event. You yeah. guys go through some tires. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the uh, kind of the main uh, usages in drifting is tires. You know, we go through about a set of rears every other lap um, in the way that the cars are configured these days. So, yeah, a lot of abuse. Not every other lap, every other session. Every other lap. Every other lap or session. Yeah, so two laps basically is a set of rears. I got you, I got you, got you. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah so. In our area, we don't really have uh, much for drifting. So I went to an event, uh, and, and they uh, were going to have it, and uh, and then they canceled it because the guys went out too early. So they actually canceled the whole event. So I was all pumped up to see it. So the first time I actually saw drifting was in at SEMA. So oh, no way. So that was yeah, first time ever. So I, you know, I've seen it several years now because I've been going to SEMA for quite a while. But uh, well, that's first, your first time official I official drifting. Otherwise, you're in Minnesota yeah. right now, 17 below yeah. zero. You guys drift. If you go out in the driveway, you're drifting. Well, yeah, I can do that well. in the backyard. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, well, tell us how Formula Drift started. I'm sure everyone, you've probably told the story a million times, but tell us how it all started. If you can yeah, ride. so I got my start, I got my start in the industry um, when I was about 19. So that would be 1999. Um, I was working for um, a car show company called Hot Import Nights, and I'd kind of fallen into working with those guys. I met the owner on a, on a chairlift in Lake Tahoe because I was pursuing um, an interest in snowboarding. I was a competitive snowboarder for a, a big part of my, like, my teens, and I moved up to Lake Tahoe, got on a chairlift with the guy that's like, hey, I do these car shows or whatever, and I'd always been interested in cars. And uh, he invited me to come down to, to Laguna Beach where their office was if I ever made it back down from... Um, from Lake Tahoe. So I went down there that summer and ended up staying down there. And I worked with those guys for a number of years. And at that time, they were expanding their business um, to incorporate some drag racing. The drag racing had been going, import drag racing in particular, had been going through 
some permutations of change. There have been a lot of different series that have been developing, and there was a little bit of um, ups and downs in the marketplace. And they brought on a guy named Jim Lau um, to kind of help guide them in a direction to build out the, the drag racing side of things. Jim and I became very friendly. And over the course of a year or so, whatever, we decided to leave the company and, and start um, a marketing company called Slipstream Global. And what Slipstream was, was basically trying to help um, non-endemic companies kind of attach themselves into this, what people are calling the tuner market or the sport compact car market. And we felt that there was a bridge that could be um, gap there a little bit. And so we, we started this company and what we quickly kind of started realizing is that there were a lot of companies that were interested in working with us to try and get into this tuner market. And so we kind of raised our profile a little bit and out of the blue, there came a Japanese drifting series that had been around for a while. They'd been around for a number of years, but they were looking to break into the US market. And so they heard about us. My partner, Jim, flew over to Japan to meet these guys and they decided that they wanted to do a one-off event in Southern California at Irwindale Speedway in the summer of or in the fall of 2003. And so we did that event. It was a smashing success. It was the largest ever event that happened at Irwindale Speedway. And that kind of kicked off drifting um, in North America. Now, from that point well, forward, the Japanese series didn't want to continue to do things in the U.S. It was kind of like a one and done. And so we told them, we said, hey, we think there's a real opportunity here. This seems like a market that could potentially be developed. And fans are really excited about this sport. You know, if you guys aren't going to do anything, we might start our own brand. And they were like, yeah, go for it. Do whatever you got to do. Um, and they didn't have any interest in continuing on. So that was the start of Formula Drift. We launched Formula Drift. They just Drift gave as, it to you then? Well, they did. We wanted to license the brand from them. That was the original, you know, from a historical standpoint, if you're interested in like Formula Drift and like how it came about, it all could have never happened if they just said, yes, you know, license our brand and continue to run the events for us. That's what we originally pitched them. Um, but they turned that down. And so we said, hey, well, then we're going to start our own brand. And, you know, here we are almost 20 years later. Wow. Formula has been around since that time. So that was kind of the start of it. We built it from the ground up. It was very, very organic in approach. It's been through many different uh, changes over the years in the way that it's looked and it's felt relative to the Japanese side of things. And now it's become kind of a, and there's an American, uh, Americanized version of drifting, which, you know, we, which we think represents formula drift. Pretty cool. Pretty cool how that started. Um, who is the guy from Hot Import Nights? Hot Import Nights, who is the guy that you ran into? I used to um, advertise. So the, the, the actual guy, his, his name himself is um, Todd Wallen. Uh, okay. And he was one of the original founders. He had some partners there, a guy named John Russell and Rich Goodwin, Mike Munar. They were all part of that original group. Um, and I worked with them for a number of years. And, and um, you know, they eventually, I think, sold off the company a few times or whatever. But um, yeah. in those early years, that is where my relationship with Jim formed. And so he's been my partner for the past uh, 19 years. And, um, you know, he's still a board member of our company and works on international stuff for us. But as I've kind of jumped into the presidency, as he's moved on to PRI, um, you know, now we're kind of doing this second permutation of Formula Drift, you know, under my guidance, I guess. <laughs> wow. And then you guys are uh, growing, just uh, you're growing basically as a company or business. Um, you guys are adding venues every every year. Or how's that going? Yeah, so we when we started this sport, we kind of started from the top down. So we did like the reverse pyramid. We didn't start off grassroots and kind of build up to the pro level. 
So one of the things we've been focused on in the past, I would say five to six years is trying to build that foundation so that there's a proper matriculation process from grassroots up to pro. Um, and so we've had our, we have our eight pro events and now we have a, a, a sister series called Prospect, which is a, a series that's designed to get people prepared and ready to run in the pro series. And then we have our Pro-Am affiliates, which are not owned companies of ours, but that are, that are grassroots organizations that we work with that help feed into ProSpec and into Pro. So a, lot, a, a large part of our investment and kind of our thought process in developing the sport is really trying to create the proper structure from grassroots Pro-Am drifting all the way up into the Pro Series. The Pro Series itself right now is fairly mature. I think it's, you know, it's on, it's on an iteration that, um, sees probably about half the field, maybe 16 of the 32 drivers, basically doing this as full-time um, drifters. And whether or not they are doing it strictly by the eight rounds that we're running over the course of, the, of a season, or they're doing it that are things that are tangentially related to drifting and their drifting program. So whether they run a shop or they are a brand ambassador, or they're doing demonstrations around the country, these are people that have kind of switched whatever they were doing in their previous life into a kind of a professional drifting role in all the different avenues that are available to them to do that. So that's kind of where right. it is right now. I thought it was very interesting how you said, instead of starting at a grassroots level, you got to start a pro. And that, to me, that makes a lot of sense because the cars are super close to the wall, super close to each other. And if you are a grassroots or if you're not uh, used to that, uh, things could happen. Yeah, I mean, the the drifting cars that were being developed in the early days are nothing like what we see now. I mean, to put it into relative perspective, you know, we were probably getting cars at the high end that had, you know, four or 500 horsepower that were kind of developing what it takes to build a car that can work within drifting physics, so to speak. And Nowadays, right now, my station wagons got over 500 horsepower. Now, 500 <laughs> horsepower is nothing. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and so nowadays, it's pretty much a, you know, a, a starting point that your car is going to have between 900 to 1200 horsepower. So these are, this is like Group B rally. I mean, these cars are crazy. The one thing that does keep them, you know, I think, identifying with fans is that the cars look like factory vehicles. You got a Ford Mustang, you have a Camaro, you've got a Nissan GT86. They have obviously kits on them. They've got really cool wheels. They've got a great componentry, but underneath that hood, you know, you've got a crazy motor that's been developed and fabricated to, to take on the load of drifting. And obviously one of the biggest factors, as we mentioned early in the conversation is how do I find that fine balance between high horsepower weight and also what, what my tires can do. And so that's been kind of the, the recent development in the sport from a, from a competition side of things is trying to find that fine balance on how they present a car because we have cars with the widest array of chassis configurations and we try to create rules that allow for parity so that we don't have say a spec series per se we have some rules in our pro spec um, class that do have a spec feel to them but in the pro class it's basically pretty much wide open for the most part and it's not a race as most people think of a race for those to our viewers who are new to this it's not I, I, I know I sound like a jerk. I don't want to say figure skating, but it is kind of judged, to, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is, I would say that what you just mentioned there is the, 
the paradigm thing that either makes you a drifting fan or turned off to drifting because it's not about how fast you go from point A to point B. Um, it's about what you do from a judging perspective, from a judging how criteria. good you look doing it. Yeah, in in two in two in two ways. One way is if you think about drifting, like you said, like figure skating or a snowboard run in the half pipe, skateboard run, surfing or whatever. There's a set criteria that each individual driver is judged on, and once they do that and they get a score. We then place those drivers in something like an NCAA style bracket. So you have number one driver going up against 32, two versus 31. And that that right there is our main competition. That bracket squeezes down until you get to the two final drivers. So you have this individualistic part of the of, of qualifying, which puts you in the bracket that you do by yourself without any outside hindrances. And then the essence of drifting is these two cars going against each other for two laps with each driver leading a lap where the judges are looking at how they performed in the lead and the chase and then deciding a winner based on how well they did that performance and they keep moving on in competition. So from a fan perspective, I believe that's why we tend to skew much younger um, because I think the younger audience, you're 18 to 34, they understand the stylistic aspect of it, the subjectivity of it. And also there's a, there's a phenomenon in drifting where there's these explosion moments that happen basically every 30 seconds as you reconfigure um, a battle. You have these guys going, it's crazy, it's wild everywhere, there's smoke everywhere, then it stops. And then you do it again, and then it stops, and then oh. you do it again. So you have this up and down kind of emotional roller coaster that happens, and you see that throughout the, entire, the entirety of competition. It seems to um, really invite a younger audience in because it, it, it's very attractive to them. And you see a lot of these kids trying to do their, you know, drifting. You see all these videos of kids doing all that type of stuff. One of my questions is going to be if you want to start out drifting, and you had already mentioned it, grassroots level. I mean, if someone wants to start out drifting, what's the best path, what's the best path to get to be a pro? I mean, yeah, this is – we're not even – instead of being a pro, how about just getting into Formula Drift? Right, Say Brady right. in a couple of years, he's got his license. He's like, hey, Dad, I want to drift. How right. would you suggest he gets into it? Right. So it's pretty simple. Um, and I feel like this is one of the most attractive things about Formula Drift is that if you do the if you do a quick comparison to stick and ball sports, even a lot of mainstream motorsports, or just about anything that you would that you would classify as being like a pro athlete or a pro driver. Nine times out of 10, you need to have um, a lifelong experience in doing that, right? Like you're not going to wake up tomorrow and be a professional mixed mar martial artist. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and be Tom Brady. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and be a professional baseball player. This is something that you had to do your entire lifetime. There are many, many instances in pro drivers in our field where they got into drifting a few years ago. Fast forward a couple of years, they've gone through pro-am and pro-spec and now they're in pro and they're making a living doing that. And it's not just a one-off anecdote. This is literally like a handful of drivers that we see year after year doing this. And so the, basically the path to becoming a pro or to getting a Formula Drift license is kind of starting at your local pro-am. Local pro-ams really only require that you meet a certain kind of safety specifications in your vehicle um, and, that you, and that you can show that you can basically you know, control the vehicle on the track. And then you just kind of slowly build up from there. Then you go into the pro-am competitions. You try to do well there over a couple events. Then from there, you'll get an opportunity 
to petition for a formula drift license if you place first, second, or third, or whatever the relationship that we have with that local pro-am is. From that point forward, it's you can go right into prospect. And prospect rounds are on four of the eight weekends that we have for the pro series. So prospect runs right alongside pro, and it gives you an up close and personal kind of understanding of what it takes to run a racing program, what it takes to run a team, what kind of business acumen you need to have in order to be able to fund your program year after year. So in a very short period of time, you could have a kid that was, you know, wrenching on his car in his garage, got a cage in there, got all the safety apparatus, went out to his local pro-am, did well in the, in the three round championship there. And then he can make that decision. Hey, am I ready to go run a four round championship in prospect at different events across the country? Um, and you can see, you know, how that can work for, you know, people that might be interested in becoming a drifter. One of the things I think that is important to mention in here is that in general, on a relative basis, drifting programs are way cheaper than traditional racing programs. So that's why I think you get a lot of interest from young kids where they can say, look, I can go buy a used chassis. I can throw some good tires on it. I can upgrade my suspension. I can turbo or supercharge my engine. You know, and for twenty-five less thousand dollars, I can have a car that can be at least get me started. Okay, now to get Brady started, you say I can get a used chassis. What's a used chassis? Is it a Miata? Uh, and I'm not insulting anybody. I hope I know Miatas are raced a lot. Is it? It's not all-wheel drive. It's not front-wheel drive. Traditionally, it's it's rear-wheel drive. Are you getting a, a, a Camaro, a Mustang, or what, what's 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 Brady's chassis? I mean, if you're just going for co- if you're going for cost effectiveness that has yeah. a good relative performance, um, you know the the Nissan older Nissan chassis, which are now becoming a little bit more expensive because of demand. So your S chassis and things like that are very very popular in drifting. Um, the Miata is a perfectly fine chassis; it's got good balance. There's a lot of different chassis out there as long as they're pushing power from the rear wheels and they're relatively balanced that you could utilize to create a drifting vehicle. I think one of the considerations is what kind of access to aftermarket parts do I have? Um, how much reconfiguring of the chassis in terms of weight distribution do I need to think about? You know, what are my available parts that I can put on this car? And then the power plant um, is something to consider as well. If you want to go, say, with something that dependable that can give you high, you know, high horsepower, or something that maybe is a little bit more exotic, you want to go turbocharged. You know, um, that's really a personal preference. Many people fall into different camps, but I think that, you know, budget and weighing what it is you're trying to do as you build your, build your drifting brand is part of the consideration there. All right. So, so we've got Brady's either the, the Mazda or the, or the Nissan chassis, and he doesn't have to run a, a, a Mazda or a Nissan engine. He can drop an LS or a Coyote or a Hellcat, whatever, and it doesn't matter what. Drop whatever engine you want, and then safety. you got to cage it. you got to strap in with, with all the, the safety equipment. Fire suppression? Fire suppression at the pro at the pro level, yeah. Pro level, um, okay. At your local pro am, um, they may they may require something like that, but in the rules that we provide to pro ams, it's more of a bare bones, right? It's making sure you've got helmet, gloves, cage, um, and the basic safety apparatus. If you're going to be doing what, what we call tandem drifting, if you're going to be driving with another person on course, then you know you need to have a certain minimum requirement of safety apparatus. If you're going to be driving by yourself, um, maybe you can come in with a little bit less. Some of that is decided by local program organizations on what type of liability they want to take on board. And to find these local program organizations, do I just go to formulad.com? Uh, is there a list there to, to help, to, you know, to, inter- to find out where to go exactly? 
Yeah, yeah. There's um, we have an affiliates page on formulad.com that kind of breaks down yeah. the current relationships that we have. Um, many of these organizations are are in and around major markets in the country. So you know, northeast, northwest, southern California, southeast. Um, there's at least probably at least one program organization within you know a four to five hour drive, no matter where you are in the country. Um, but definitely a lot more around major markets. Very good. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm sure a lot of kids wonder how they can get into it because you know I'm sure my my middle son Carter would have probably thought about it, you know. So. And you said, can you the classes? You've got pro at the top, pro spec. You said just below, and the, can you run down the rest of the classes? Yeah. So the the only class missing out of that is basically pro am, and so pro oh, okay. pro spec and pro spec and pro are are owned organizations by us. So we run those top to bottom. And those those events run on official Formula Drift weekends. The thing that feeds into those is Pro-Am, or if you happen to be an international driver, um, say in the Middle East or in Japan or in Europe, we have affiliations in those countries as well, or those regions, where if you decide you wanna come over to the United States because you think that this is the best way to kind of grow your drifting profile and you wanna come compete in Formula Drift, you can also get licensed from organizations that we have relationships in those parts of the world as well. All right, so Brady's got he's got the chassis, he's got the engine, he's got the safety stuff. Uh, are there tire classes? Because uh, I know that within the good guys, uh, you you can't run anything softer than the 200 Treadwear series. Uh, it can be harder than that, but I mean, can you guys run whatever tire? Run what you brung? Does it matter? Or there? Yeah. So the tire, tire side is obviously. The tire side is very important. Um, there are there are distinct differences between pro tire requirements and uh, pro spec. So in pro spec, there is a, a spec tire, um, and the main the main thing that it, it it has a difference in compared to the pro is the width of the tire. Because at some point, the width of the tire and the power and the weight of the vehicle are going to make a difference in how the vehicle can perform. So in pro spec, we max out at a 265, um, but in pro you have a tire to weight ratio for the vehicles and you can use a variety of different tire brands. So you have, you know, a 315 on one car, you might have a 285 on another car, but they might have a variance in weight. So however much weight you have is gonna dictate the width of the tire that you can use. And then in terms of the compounds, oh. yes. In terms of the compounds, there's there's various uh, compounds that each of the tire manufacturers have, but they kind of have to fit into a bucket um, that gives them some parity and competition and grip level. Interesting. Now, is that all? Is that formula or the power? You brought me back to Monty Python, the Holy Grail. It's not a question of where it grips it. It's a power to weight ratio. So <laughs> is that all on, on FormulaD.com to, to figure out what, you know, uh, what, what tires we can use for what car we've got with the power and the, and the, and the weight? Yeah, yeah. So like in, even on our website, if you go down to regulations, you can click in there and get copies of the different regulations we have, whether it's a technical sporting regulations or judging regulations for the three rule books that we have. And then it kind of breaks down who our current tire manufacturers are. Um, rule books. And then what okay. the, yeah, then what the tire to weight ratio is for um, vehicles that are coming in at a certain weight. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. yeah for, so if you want to get into formula, formula drift, formula D.com is pretty much your one-stop shop to figure out exactly what you need, where to go, all that kind of stuff. All you got to do is get yourself a chassis and uh and some safety tubes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, you've had uh, some 
pretty some of your top drivers or one of them just retired this last season right was it uh can't remember his name out of Von well, Von Gittin, and you had another guy, too, wasn't he, from Japan? Uh, Daijiro Yoshihara, yeah. So, da, yeah, so yeah. Dai, Dai I, I guess, officially retired is what he's saying. Vaughn is taking kind of a hiatus to work on yeah. some other things. I don't think that he is officially retired, but he's certainly given up his seat to another driver that he's bringing up into the championship. Well, on That's the Hot Rod Power awesome. Tour uh, last year, we had Vaughn come out. He He's sponsored by HP Tuners, and he had his Mustang. And I did some live hits, and I had to send one of the videos to my brother. And my brother was just blown away. Is it, Like you said, within three minutes, he pulled off the little out-of-the-concrete barriers, jacked up the rear end. They put on a new set of not tires but wheels. Mm-hmm. It's like these things were down to the cords, the, the belts. It's amazing. Yeah, within three minutes, and he did three different sets. Mm-hmm. Took some people for an e-ticket ride, and uh, yeah, amazing car control. And that's just in a little yeah. concrete box, not out there with another car doing it. It's amazing to watch. Yeah, amazing drivers. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's Von Gittin's just something. Watching him at SEMA, you know, he's just running around there. Yeah, you say you've I, seen this at, at SEMA, Mike. Have you ever been? At, have you been on a a passenger ride on one of these? Out oh there? no, no, I oh, should yeah. do it one of these one of these times. I'd probably be holding on for dear life, but. <laughs> Heck yeah, holding just, the phone too. Get some video. I just don't know how they can do it. You know, their bumpers are inches away from the wall, and I'm just like, whoa. It's just amazing watching that. And then this year That's they had amazes- that, uh, that electric car. They had the Mach, Mach-E out there, and that was interesting. It just doesn't make any sound. That's what kills me, except for the tires squealing for mercy. But it's like when I was out in Long Beach and, I, and Travis Pastrana, I bet you some of the, our viewers out there watched the Jim Cotta series and the Hootigans with Ken Block. But TP did this thing in a Subaru where he comes around on this, it, it's at a dock or on the side of the ocean, and a wheel comes off the edge, and his front wheel's dragging him back on. They are so close to being over that edge. It's, it's unbelievable. And that's just yeah. alone. In Formula Drift, you've got a competitor and, uh, and, and Ryan, just to, uh, uh, to clarify, they don't do a do-si-do. They've got two separate laps and two laps of, of one person leading, one person following, and then they stop, and then, then they do-si-do. They don't do that on the right. track, right? Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're – Okay. Uh, yes, that's exactly right. There, there are instances, they're rare, where the chase driver might pass the lead driver if he goes way off of the prescribed line. But in general, yes, you're, you, you each have an opportunity to lead a lap. And then after the, the succession of those laps, the judges will award a winner. They also have an option, if they believe that the run is too close to call, to do a one more time. And that basically restarts it over again. And that's always, fans love that. So, you know, there, there's, there's basically three options. It's driver A, driver B, or one more time. There you go. Um, before we started talking, or when we started talking before the video, you said there's a new venue this year. Where is that going to be? Yeah, so we we are going to be going to U- Utah Motorsports uh, Complex out there nice. in um, just outside of Salt Lake. Um, yeah, we. What's happening in the series right now is that um, Grantsville, Utah, a, September 16th and 17th. There you go. The the uh, kind of demand. As we talked about Pro-Am and, and Prospect, the, the demand for drivers has certainly elevated post-COVID. It's been an unanticipated growth. 
And so when we travel to a, a venue, we have to be able to accommodate at least 32 pro teams and 32 prospect teams. And so you can imagine the difference between just having pro at, at an event and prospect from a logistics standpoint require, means that we need a lot more real estate. And because we have at least four prospect rounds of the eight pro rounds, we've got to find venues that can accommodate for that existing uh, footprint in the paddock. And so we looked at Utah, it's obviously a really fast growing market. Um, Supercross has been doing a lot of work there and kind of like growing the motorsports side of things. And, you know, we're going to be going there this year to kind of test it out and we're excited to get there. The track is amazing. Um, there's a lot of really cool, I think, competition that's going to come out of it. And we'll see how it uh, appeals to fans in that area. And you, you said Supercross. The, the, those are running on dirt, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. Just to, just to <laughs> clarify. Just yeah, want to yeah. make sure. Because I know uh, a Speed Tech is out in uh, uh, Green River, Utah, and they go up to, to UMI up there. Uh, they, they've got a couple events for their autocross or their uh, uh, global time attack. Yep, yep, exactly. So um, you did announce, and we can't say much about it, but I was at SEMA at your press conference, and you announced some news that you're going to be coming out with uh, later on this year. I don't know when that starts, but you can tell us anything, or at least tell Jeff what it is and the people watching. Heck yeah. Yeah, so we, you know, we are always trying to grow the profile of, of the sport. One of the things that we have as an asset in the sport is that we have the second largest social media following only to NASCAR. Um, but our, our, our demographic is, is much younger in age. So we get a lot of activity on our YouTube channel and on Instagram and on Facebook that is, you know, constantly kind of cycling itself in and out. People are talking about drifting. They want to debate calls. They are very interested in engaging in stuff that we do. And they're always wanting to know what happens kind of behind the scenes. And so we've spent a lot of resources developing programming around the sport, trying to tell stories and distributing that out on social. Um, you know, we had, a, we had a television show that we did on, on CBS and ESPN2 and a bunch of other networks for about 18 years leading up to COVID. And so we announced at SEMA that we're going to be trying to bring back a television com component, whether or not it goes on to a network or whether it goes on to a streaming platform that kind of, um, I guess, mimics hopefully some of the success that you've seen from programs like Drive to Survive. And the primary motivation for that is that when we've had television producers and networks out to the, to the show, they quickly kind of realize that the behind the scenes is, is as good of a story as the on-track competition. You have these and people young people love behind the scenes stuff. They just love it. They just eat it up. So we're, we're shopping a show right now. Uh, we're trying to find a home for it. We'll see if that happens. You know, there's no guarantees in this space. Obviously, everybody else is jumping into this category, but we've been doing this for a long time um, in a show that was called Formula Drift Insider. And so we're looking to kind of bring that back and do it in a different kind of way where we can maybe get some more mainstream acceptance of the sport, build out some of these athlete profiles. There's just a lot of really, really cool drivers in the series that have great background stories. And if you know anything about, you know, motorsports, you know that there's scales, right? There's scales of, you know, what if it's a, a grassroots team all the way up to the multi-million dollar team. And in Formula Drift, what you see is that a lot of the program is run by wives, girlfriends, and family members. And when you have that kind of dynamic, you have a really interesting kind of story to tell because the wife or the girlfriend is, or even the boyfriend, because we have some women in the series, 
is the nice. manager, is the person that's getting all of the food ordered, is the athlete representative. They share these really dynamic roles and it makes for great storytelling. So yeah, we're in the marketplace, we're shopping a show and uh, you know we'll see what happens. Now, what's nice. the benefit of going to a network? Everyone's on YouTube. It's like my little nephew. He He's on the TV, but he's watching these uh, these silly YouTube gamer videos. Mm -hmm. it's like, and I see all that you said that the, the, a huge part of your audience is younger, the younger generation. I, in, in my experience, they're all on YouTube or, or they're not on the networks, the television yeah. networks. That I'm old. I like watching TV. Um, but it's like, what's the benefit of going to a network rather than just why you just... You've got what 1.4 million followers on Instagram. I mean, that's amazing at uh, Formula D. So why not just YouTube? Well, we, you know, it may that may be the direction. I think we would like to get onto a streaming platform uh, partner that can promote what we're doing in a significant kind of way. We will still be producing all of the content and shows okay. that we put out on YouTube and video platforms. We are still going to do all of that stuff. But what we would like to do is have a network or production company get behind this and do some more narrative building storytelling that can go up, preferably on a streaming platform and then promote it and market it. That would be our preference. So that's why I kind of use the drive to survive um, example as opposed to, hey, we're gonna go do a show on one of the big um, networks because you're exactly right. For a demographic like us, where you have a big cord cutting kind of phenomenon going on, all we see is that our demographic is digesting, taking in content on these social platforms. And so obviously we want to support that and be consistent with that as best we can. And you said right. Formula Drift Insider. I, I It wasn't 20 years ago, but almost. I had, I love Formula One. Michael Schumacher is the best. And I had this idea years ago, Formula One Insider. We took <laughs> to each venue. People love the behind the scenes. You can already see the race on Speed Vision, on where you can see the race. But if you're an American or because Americans don't watch it, where do you go? What do you do while you're there? And it's like, this is before the big social media. And now it's somebody's already taken it and done it and da, 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 da. But you guys have the inside Formula D? Yeah, well, we have a show called Formula Drift Insider that we had on network. Um, and then also we, we parallel programmed it on social stuff um, along the way. And that we really liked the concept of that show. We just felt that we needed to get it in front of a streaming platform or a production company that could make it as cool as some of the stuff that you're seeing from say Drive to Survive. I mean, that's a very compelling narrative building deeply in the details of what goes on behind one of the most secretive motorsports in the world, Formula One. And I think the way that they've done that and how well it's been received is something that we would like to try to mimic in some sense because we feel that we have just as good of stories to tell that are not being told right now. And many of these drivers have these really, really compelling backgrounds. And also, you know, <laughs> in competition, things definitely get kind of crazy. So there's also stories to tell there as well. Well, like you said, F1 is like super competitive or super uh, secretive. Uh, I'm, and this is in, uh, we, down in Long Beach, I went to the IndyCar race. And back a few years ago, Penske had the new front wing. It's like, hey, is that? And I went over to look at it. It was undercover, and the guy flipped out, threw the blanket on top. You can't see that. It's like it's super secret, but people love the behind the scenes to be able to go and see. And when I was down in Long Beach, you could walk right up to Bucky Lasek or Travis Pastrana and 
Travis would shake your hand right there and say, hey, check out the car, whatever you want to see. They're like completely open. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there's definitely a distinct difference there between the racing platforms. I think if you watch the kind of um, over the years development of Drive to Survive, once it kind of got into mainstream popularity, you started to see some of the more quiet or reserved teams want to get involved because of the benefit of it. And that's, I think that's come under the new paradigm, um, you know, with Liberty and kind of them trying to open up Formula One a little bit more. In our sport, we've always been, tried to be as open as possible. And many of the athletes in the sport are just as you said, you want to come into my pit and paddock, you want to hang out with me, you want to have a drink with me after the event, you want to see how I build my car, like it's all there. And so there's a lot of really cool access points that I think that we have in the sport because we're an open pit and paddock. We don't have our rights assigned to any network at the current moment. And that allows drivers to go out and, and tell stories and distribute content, which is something that's distinctly different from a lot of other sanctioning bodies. It's one of the reasons why drifting, I believe, has become so popular in the social space is because we basically allow athletes to kind of be their own media arm. They can bring out their their videographers and their producers and tell their story on the weekend. And so how that's developed and grown is it's created a, a higher profile for the sport. And so now we're trying to take advantage of a di- other opportunities that might be out there in, tor- in terms of compelling storytelling. Or if the drivers are grassroots or they're just starting out and they don't have the videographer and the producer and the director, they can literally take out their iPhone and do their thing. The video is that kind of quality and they can tell their own story right, right then and there. That's what I think, uh, what NHRA, I mean, where else can you go up and see a, a 10,000 horsepower nitro huffing beast blowing the fuel? I want to bring my nephew to one and make him cry. It's like you get right up <laughs> close and personal. I mean that with all the love in my heart. Um, but it's like, yeah, where else can you go and do that? And, and it's completely open and accessible. Yeah, and well, that's what we love about it. I mean, we had uh, Richard Rawlings on, and, you know, he worked, you know, with Discovery. And it sounds like he is handcuffed a lot. So maybe with getting with a network, that kind of does hang, handcuff you a little bit as far as what you guys want to do. So like you say, if everyone's doing their own thing, it's just spreading your brand further than just hooking up with the network. That's what yeah, I mean. so we'll, we'll see how it goes. It's one of the things that I yeah. have as a priority for us is to kind of expand and grow our content profile and whether or not it's in the, in the case of this show or whether it's doubling down and investing in areas where we know we've already seen some success. Uh, we're going to continue to do that in 22. Uh, and, you know, we're looking forward to, you know, trying to see um, how much more mainstream acceptance we can get from the sport. You know, drifting has always kind of been the redheaded stepchild in motorsports. But along the way, we've we've grown our fan base to be something that can't be scoffed at. Um, and so when you look at the statistics, when you look at the number of people that are coming to events, when you look at the people that are investing their time, even in COVID, you know, COVID years like last year, where every single event we broke a record from previous years. Um, and that we did not expect that after 2020, because 2020, we couldn't really have fans at any of our events. And so many people thought, during the COVID year that that would be too crippling for us because so much of our business is derived from live event attendance. And so we basically, I think we had one event where we could have fans at it and it was a a smaller market for us. We figured out a way to retool the series that year so that we didn't take a huge financial loss. When we got to 21, 
and we had less restrictions across these venues, there was an absolute explosion of interest from fans that wanted to come out to events. And every single round, we were we were like, no way, no way. Again, 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 and we got to the final event of the year, um, and it was another sellout show. So we're trying to build on that momentum. We think it's a great time for drifting right now. There's a lot of really cool compelling stories to tell, but there's also a, a general compelling story, I think, to tell about the growth and the mainstream acceptance of the sport. And so we're going to continue to try to build off of that. To go back, what you called it the redheaded stepchild. Why? <laughs> um, I believe, you know, my, this is my personal opinion is that there's a lot of people that are, that are in traditional motorsports that don't think that, um, drifting is legitimate, you know, that, that, the perception of it, and I've, I've, I've heard this when I go into meetings with, you know, um, agencies and some people that might be tied to motorsports in some way that because it's not racing, because it's not point A to point B, um, it's almost looked at as kind of a sideshow type of thing. That it's it's cool, yeah, it's cool, it's car control and blah, 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 but it's not, it's not Formula One, it's not road racing. Um, and so because of that, it's a little bit, um, I think, looked down upon. But at the same time, what you can't look down upon is what's coming out of it in terms of the popularity of the sport. And so if you, I think if you're honest, what you recognize in motorsports in general is that motorsports and especially the big motorsports have a problem of an aging demographic that these, a lot of their fans are aging out, right? And they're not coming to events as much and they're not doing as much in the sport. And so you need to bring a younger audience. You need to somehow convince a younger audience that your sport is still relevant and that they will become a fan of your sport. Well, where is the youth in motorsports nowadays? Well, I've, I've got in our, in our series, all we have is youth. You come out to one of our events, it's gonna be a sellout event packed wall to wall from kids that are 16 to 30. And that's what we bring to the table is trying to give people a little look into motorsports show them how cool it can be, get them interested in automotive culture. And then there can almost be a handoff for people to experience cup races or IMSA or things like that. But it's the job of those sanctioning bodies to make their series appeal to that younger demographic because that's where the brands are going. That's where a lot of the investment is going. And so I think people have to you know, look themselves in the mirrors and we do too, honestly, to make sure that they are trying to build a sport that's gonna be relevant for an audience that they need to capture over time. Interesting. Very nice. And, yeah. and you guys have you guys have some amazing sponsors, and you know that's one of the things that some of the NASCAR teams even have problems with uh, getting sponsors. So you guys have a lot of amazing sponsors and partners. I see. So it's good good to see. And yeah, if you want to be a sponsor, yeah. What's that? Yeah, get a hold of Ryan if you want to be a sponsor. Get a hold of Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> get these younger kids involved and it's good to see the younger kids involved in motorsports and continuing you know all these other I, we have a lot of classic car people that follow us but that's why i wanted to do something different because you know we got to see what's going on around the world and not be just have tunnel vision and not recognize what's going on so i think that's and i believe i went down to, to long beach your your first event is long beach april 1st and 2nd when I was right. down there with Royal Purple, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it around the same weekend as the Long Beach Grand Prix? Yeah, so we have a long-standing relationship with the Long Beach Grand Prix. We love those guys. They've been very, very supportive of the sport. They're one of the bodies 
in particular that has been a huge advocate for drifting. And so we started working with them probably around 2008 um, in doing demonstrations on the Long Beach Grand Prix. And what that relationship matured into was us having uh, our own event the weekend prior to the Long Beach Grand Prix. So yeah, that's been going on for quite a while. Previous weekend, okay. Yeah, so basically we're like the lead up to the Grand Prix. Our event is on the first and the second, and then that next weekend is the Grand Prix. Um, And it's really, really cool because it's not very often that um, an organization recognizes, you know, say the value that what we can bring to the table that then also allows us to utilize their venue the weekend prior to put on a show. So the Grand Prix has been amazing, great to work with, and they've been a huge advocate of drifting in general and supportive of us. And Long Beach is pretty much our biggest event that we do. Mike, have you been to the Long Beach Grand Prix? No, I've been to Long Beach, but I was about 10 years old. (laughs) The Grand Prix, though, they shut off downtown. They shut off the roads that we drive on down there. And the tra- yeah. there's no room ru- there's no room for error. I mean, there's no runoffs yeah. anywhere. It's concrete bar- jersey barriers. If you're off, you're in the wall. You're done. I mean, there it's. Yeah. Compl- have you been around the track, Ryan? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been okay, a long yeah. time now. <laughs> oh, and another yeah. question: that, uh, What do, what do you drive? Right now, well, right now I have a, I've got a Ford Raptor. Oh, okay. So the, yeah, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a dirt head. Um, I love I love camping and drive dirt bikes and um, you know love to go out to the desert and Glamis and stuff like that. Oh, and okay. Got so a, this Raptor is no nowhere near stock. It, it's mostly <laughs> stock, but it's got some oh. it's got some stuff on there. Yeah, I've got a little bit of upgraded suspension. I've got lights. I've got um, you know wheels and tires. And is it the old V8 Raptor or is it the new uh, V6 twin turbo? It's the V6 twin turbo, but it's not okay. a 22. I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. So yeah, it's a 2018. Uh, <laughs> and then the my are, they're super capable. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I mean, it's, for me, it's the perfect vehicle because I can go wherever I want, but I can also put stuff in the back and I can tow not as good as a, you know, an F-150 or, you know, a 2500, but I can still tow a lot and I've got the stabilizer and the whole nine. So yeah, it's, it's cool. You may not be able to tow as much, but you can jump your, your Raptor, and you couldn't jump the 2500. Absolutely, yeah. And I had a good time doing that in Glamis this, this past Christmas, so that was fun. And they're yeah. a sharp-looking truck. Sharp-looking truck, too. I like I like the looks of them. So. Now, do you have any? I see you're snowboarding on your Instagram. I don't see any uh, any dirt or any sand from Glamis on your uh, – and I knew you were legit on Instagram when uh, – Larry Chen photo follows you. I mean, if Larry Chen <laughs> follows you, come on. Larry Chen, yeah, he always gets the gold. Anything. I don't think I've posted anything on Instagram for like two years. I, I, um, I, even though like in my department, I have to be an expert on social media. I'm not much of like a social media person myself. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, you'll probably see some stuff on there, some family stuff or whatever. It's kind of hard to f- figure out what the line is from like personal stuff to work stuff. I never really March 3rd, that 2020 is the last time you posted. <laughs> yeah. And that's your snowboarding. Yeah, that's, well, that was right before COVID, right? Everything went downhill after yeah. that. And you were yeah, literally going downhill. And yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so you, you used to be or you wanted to be a professional snowboarder? Yeah, I've always been involved in athletics. I was a big baseball guy um, in high school. And I started snowboarding parallel to that. And um, I got really into it. Yeah, I did did a bunch of competitions regionally here, and then I wanted to try to make a run at it, and so I moved Where's to Lake Tahoe. Where's here? 
Oh, I'm in Southern, I'm in Southern California. So like my local okay. mountains here, like Bear Mountain and Mountain High, Mammoth. Okay. Um, I moved up to Lake Tahoe to try to pursue that for about a year and quickly kind of realized like the, the abilities that I would need plus the, the lack of finances available for snowboarding was, was definitely like a, a humbling experience, but I gave it a shot for a year. I tried to do X Games um, and then like local Vans Triple Crowns in that area. And then when I met the guy on the ski lift, I was kind of like, wow, well, you know, do I need to start thinking about a career or, you know, how much do I want to, you know, try this snowboarding thing? I had figured that I would go down and work with those guys for a summer and then go back up and keep doing this, but I just never came back and I, I started living in Laguna Beach. <laughs> oh, yeah, living That's... the dream. My niece is in Mammoth right now. Last week she was there on the Futures Tour and they're still there for the, the Revan Tour. And her goal is the Olympics and X Games. And you, you had mentioned the X Games. So I'm curious, uh, another one of my friends, his son was ranked number one. And it's like, and once he turned 18, he kind of got out of it. I'm like, well, what happened? Well, then he has to compete against all the other 18-year-olds. And in order to compete snowboarding, you have to do uh, nines, tens, twenties, all these, you, you've got to progress. And the only way to progress is to push yourself. And if you push yourself, bad things could potentially happen. Yeah, so is yeah. that kind of where you went? You got a, you got a good job and uh, you still snowboard for fun or? Uh... You might have a funny story. The, the way I was able to fund going to, to Lake Tahoe and, and do snowboarding every day because I didn't want to have to work a part-time job is I actually went on the prices, right? <laughs> and oh, I won I won a minivan. I won a minivan. This was in like 2019 or something. Or, uh, okay. Uh, uh, 19. I won a minivan, and so I, I took receipt <laughs> of it. I sold it, and I used that chunk to fund my Lake Tahoe no expedition. Way. Yeah. So, and I was like, you know, I can, I can, you know, pay up front for like um, a rental, and I can snowboard every day without having to worry about getting a job. And so I did that for a full year before my funds kind of got to a point. And around that, around that point is when I met Todd on the on the chairlift and you know you kind of had to make a tough decision at that do i want to continue to do this do i think i can really make it you know how much passion do i have for it you know i also have passion for the automotive side of things there's jeff on the price is right no way <laughs> i worked there for almost the, 10 years yeah this is when the universe collides jeff used to work on the show <laughs> how nuts is that That's amazing yeah i have the. you know what i think the clip one of the clips is on my instagram somewhere way down in the feed i I put it on there many, many years ago. When you yeah, said so that, I about started, I about, I just almost started laughing because I know Jeff was on the show. Oh, yeah, that and snowboarding, sold the minivan. Yeah, yeah, there you so, go. Sold it, paid the taxes, and, and, and then took the rest and went to Lake Tahoe. <laughs> and I always say sometimes you have those special moments. So when you were sitting on that uh, chairlift, that was your moment. And then look what happened to you. Look what happened now, you know. 20 years later, like you say, amazing how yeah, things work an out. An 18 year old kid out of high school, figuring out whether or not I wanted to continue to play baseball in college, go to college in general, like that time in my life was kind of like figure it out. And um, yeah. you know, some things happened and I was able to kind of get into the automotive industry in a way that I didn't anticipate. And, you know, that pretty much set me on the path that I'm on now. Once I kind of discovered drifting, I there was something in me that basically said, I got to see this through. And, you know, a lot of people have job turnover every five years or things like that. I've always 
really loved what Formula Drift is. And the, the biggest part of it is, I think the primary motivator for me is that I get to see people realize their dreams. And that's something that I always wanted for myself. So I right. get to see these kids that go from pro-am to prospect to pro, and they, they are now technically a professional athlete. And the amount of gratitude that they have for that experience and the things that it gives them psychologically in their life is really, really important to me. So I love that part of the job, just giving people a platform to re realize their dreams. And that's why I think I've stuck with it, stuck with it so long is that I get to see that happen every single year as people come into the series. That's fantastic. Right. Yeah, it's your passion becomes their their passion and just to see that happen. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So all right. Well, I think we're gonna wrap it up, huh? We're almost well, at an really, hour. I really appreciate it. On YouTube, three hundred and ninety thousand subscribers. Formula Drift on YouTube, and then uh, FormulaD.com. Uh, for all you grassroots guys out there, check it out. You got the, the entire schedule. Long Beach, Atlanta, Orlando, Englishtown, New Jersey. Only a few East Coast events or a couple. Madison, Illinois, Monroe, Washington, Grantsville, Utah, uh, and then back to Irwindale, your, your first event. And then what is it? Formula D on Instagram, 1.4 million followers. And you got to get to work, Ryan. Only 4,000 4, for you. And I couldn't find your... Uh, your price is right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I'm a guys, when you say you had international partners, are you doing any uh, events outside of the U.S. then or not? Yeah, so we have a we have a self-branded sister series called Formula Drift Japan that runs a five-round championship uh, in Japan. Is that what Oka Boji, Oka, you, you have a from afar with the cars going around the cul-de-sac? On your Instagram. Yeah, so the, I think you're referring to Okuabuki. Thank you. That one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we we do five that we do five venues there. Um, the the team that usually goes to those rounds hasn't been able to go since COVID because of the the travel restrictions, but they are kind of like a self-sustaining entity that runs the program over there. Drivers sometimes will try to come over to the states and compete. We've got two guys from um, FD Japan that have come over in recent years so yeah there's a there's an alignment there there's it's the same brand um but it's just run in japan okay yeah i was wondering so about it kind that. of started in japan are the japanese drivers since they've been around longer are they considered the the cream of the crop or are the u.s drivers and i know this is a biased question but in your opinion many of the debates that end up in yelling and screaming are the ones that try to answer that question so yeah. it's, I think it's all going to be, it depends on what, you know, what you, what you like. There certainly is a different style to Japanese drifting, traditional Japanese drifting. In terms of the vehicle builds, um, there, there certainly is a, a disparity between the American builds and the, the Japanese builds as a whole. There are specific cars in Japan that are beasts that can compete at any level around the world, including the U.S. side of things. But the U.S. style of drifting and the Japanese style of drifting, I would think the general consensus there is just so it's hard to say this guy is the best drifter in the world versus this guy or whatever. Right. I think the general consensus, there's a driver named James Dean um, that was in our series for three years, and he won the championship three consecutive years. He's also won a number of championships in the European series that he's participated in. I think many people consider him right now to be the, the current best driver in the world. 
Um, but there's many other drivers that are at his level that are, are, are doing things that he's doing as well. So it's a constant debate, right? It's, you know, is it Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant? Is it, it's, it's that, you know? Okay. That's, there you go. So uh, how would you explain, I guess in a nutshell, the difference in styles between the U S and Japan? Um, I think, you know, to kind of like bear, you know, to put it down to the essentials is that there is a, there is an aggressiveness mixed in with the fluidity, I think in Japanese style of drifting. I think one thing that you see from the American side of things, it is that is much more regimented, um, much more calculated because they're, they are really, really trying to do exactly what the judges are telling them. And so you have this kind of criteria style that has it has something intangible that's hard to point to. And we try to define that in the sport as much as we possibly can. But my, my own judges will tell me, when I see the style, it is hard to pinpoint what it is that the, that the driver is doing in terms of the way that they're manipulating the vehicle, the lack of e-brake pulls, the smoke, the, the, the throttle control and all that. Um, so, you know, there are things that I think that, you know, I don't like using the word ethereal, but it's the best way to kind of describe maybe some of the things that come out in the differences between the driving styles. A bit more clinical and clean on the American side and maybe a little bit more reckless abandon on the Japanese side when you're just looking <laughs> really? at the team. Oh, very cool. Well, I love the word, how you use the word fluidity. I mean, getting the back end to swing out fluidity, that's, that was very beautiful, very eloquent. I'm probably going to get in trouble <laughs> for what I just said there, but that's <laughs> that's that's the, I would say that's, probably the conversation that you would hear was being something like that. Right. Very also, interesting. Anything else you want to tell the people at home, Ryan? No, this has been great guy, guys. Lots of fun. I really appreciate the promotional opportunity to kind of get out there and tell the story about the sport. And uh, it's been great. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thanks thank for you. coming uh, on. If I'm around any of these areas, yeah, I'm going to hit you up because I want to come check it out again. I haven't been to one of these in yeah a few years now. So again, thank yeah. you for coming on. And it's Ryan J. Sage on Instagram, Formula D on Instagram, FormulaD.com, and then uh, Formula Drift on YouTube. Yep, you got it. Thank you. All right. Thank well, you, thanks Ryan. for joining us today. It's been, been fun.